Hello all, and I extend a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 21. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and I thank you guys for joining me. If you're a first-timer, welcome, and I hope you find the episodes entertaining. If you're a die-hard listener, then cheers all, it continues to mean the world you're joining me. With thanks in person this week to my Patreon supporters, that's Elise Pantino and Nikki Preston. It's much appreciated guys, I hope you enjoy the bonus episode and the next one is in the works as we speak. For anyone interested in becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, seek out the True Crime Enthusiast on Patreon and see what being a supporter has to offer. There's bonus content available and perhaps the chance of things, so if you're interested head on over there or there is a link in the show notes this week alongside the social media handles for the show. So I hope everybody's had a good week. And if you're a listener from the UK, is anyone like me and has had a sickener by now with a bone-chillingly cold weather? It's honestly so cold here that I constantly feel like I'm in Game of Thrones. I wish it'd just bugger off now, or at least let's have a decent bit of snow first, get it all out of the way, and then the cold can just go and do one. I managed to dodge the dreaded bugs for a while as well, but in the past couple of days it's gripped me, and as I record this, I've got a bit of the dreaded cold. So if my voice sounds a bit different to normal, that's why. Which does suck, but you soldier on. So Valentine's Day's just been. Has love been in the air for you? Or have you sacked all the romance off and instead just been binging on true crime podcasts all week? If so, then I hope you've checked out the latest episode. Well, the latest episode as I record this anyway, because Adam does release at the same time as myself. From the UK True Crime Podcast. The latest one I've listened to Well, Adam's got a cracker of a case in this one. It's got sex, murder, the occult, just what you want on your morning commute, isn't it? Minus the murder bit, of course. I've also enjoyed this week the first part of a two-part episode from Men's Rear, where the host Sinead recounts a tale concerning a murder on St. Patrick's Day in 1996, that there's a bit more to that than meets the eye. So I'm looking forward to the concluding part of that one. I highly recommend both podcasts, Continued excellence all round, and it's especially nice to see Sinead back. So there's no country hopping this week on the podcast. We had a short trip to Italy last week with the case of Danilo Restivo, but this week we are firmly embedded in the UK, but again with a case that spans quite a long time, almost 25 years. So October the 2nd, it may be some listeners' birthdays or anniversaries. In history, it was the day in 1925 that John Logie Baird performed the first working test of a television system in his laboratory. It was the day that the first Peanuts cartoon was published in 1950. And it was the day in 1959 that The Twilight Zone first premiered on the US TV channel CBS. More recently, it was the day that the infamous Washington sniper attacks began in 2002. But it was on this date in the UK in 1979 that a crazed killer struck taking the life of a young mother of two in a horrific murder. He was caught, imprisoned, then released, apparently deemed fit to re-enter society. Events, however, would prove otherwise. Please be advised that this episode contains content and descriptions of crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look at the case of Glyn Dix. 
The city of Gloucester in the county of the same name is located on the east bank of the River Severn, which is the UK's longest river, and is on the Welsh border with the Cotswolds to the east of it and the Forest of Dean to the southwest. It was established in AD 567 as an important Roman Britain settlement, and evidence of its centuries of Roman occupation is still evident in its layout and architecture. It's very straightly set out, lots of streets having the suffix gate. It has a vast, impressive cathedral that's a popular attraction and that many of you will have inadvertently seen even if you haven't visited it in person as it's been used to film scenes found in many of the Harry Potter films, which I'm sure many of the listeners have seen. And of course, as a city, it was made infamous in the early 1990s when the whole awful tale and horrific crimes of Fred and Rose West were brought to light. But before the crimes of Fred and Rose West were brought to light, Gloucester was the scene of another brutal murder. It was about 5pm on the afternoon of Tuesday the 2nd of October 1979, when 32-year-old mother of two children, Pia Overbury, left the bakery in Brockworth, Gloucester, where she was employed in a part-time capacity. It was her daughter's birthday that day, and Pia had been in good spirits as was usual for her, She was described fondly by all who knew her as a happy, trusting soul, a hard-working, devoted mum, married to her husband James, who was a self-employed builder. A testimony to the hard-working character that she was is shown in the fact that aside from being a mum and running a home and a part-time bakery job, Pia was also attempting to help her husband James launch a property development business. To this extent... The couple had managed to purchase one of the few cottages that remained alongside the Gloucester Docks in High Orchard Street. This area was once thriving, but since the mid-1960s had declined, although the warehouses remained and were used most prominently for the filming of scenes from TV dramas of the time. Just a few houses remained in High Orchard Street, and the Overburys had bought one and let it to a tenant, a young man named Glyn Dix. Little is known about Dix's early life. In 1979 he was 26 years old and had spent his life working as a hospital porter. He had only recently moved to the Gloucester area, let in the house from the Overburys and he didn't tend to know many people in the area. Perhaps this struck something in the kind-hearted, good-natured Pyre as she felt sorry for the young man and was only too glad to offer him a helping hand and a roof over his head. But Dix proved to be a bad payer and would often try excuse after excuse for not paying his rent at the allotted time and would only pay when confronted by Pyre or on occasion James. This got to be a regular thing. It's unknown what Dix spent his money on, whether it was alcohol, gambling or whether he was just tight-fisted and didn't like to part with money. But often, come rent paying time, Pyre would have to visit the house to ask Dix for the money in person. It was never forthcoming from him. Pia's daughter, Maxine, told many years later how that she and her sister would usually go everywhere their mother went, and this included going to the house where Dix lived to collect rent. She furthermore told that from the first time she ever met him, she didn't like the man. There was just something unsavoury about him that she couldn't work out. On one occasion, she vividly remembered following Dix upstairs at the property and him turning round and pulling a demonic-looking face that scared the life out of her and strengthened her dislike of him. But now, this dislike was accompanied by fear. So the 2nd of October 1979, 
When Pia's two daughters arrived home from school, the mother wasn't at home, nor was the minivan that Pia used. When the father came home from work, he told them that Pia was going straight to a party from work that day and wouldn't be back until late that evening, so the girls thought nothing of it. They only expressed mild surprise that Pia had decided to go out knowing it was her daughter's birthday. But when they woke up the next morning and there was still no sign of their mother, it was then that they started to think that something was seriously amiss. James did also. Now there are conflicting reports about the state of the Overbury's marriage. Maxine has described the family as being happy and stable, and her parents being very much in love through their 12-year marriage. But there are equally reports that the marriage may have been an unhappy one, with several rows accompanying it. It's reported that Pyre had never arrived at any party that day, and was reported as a missing person a few days after she was last seen, possibly up to five days afterwards. Now why it took so long to do this is unclear, although this might be quite a telling statement as to the actual state of the marriage, to not report your loved one missing for five days. I think you'd worry pretty much before then, wouldn't you? When she was finally officially reported missing, a mass search utilising the police and the public who volunteered got underway, and Pyre's minivan was soon found abandoned at Gloucester Railway Station. So had she run away? No one was found matching her description who'd caught a train at any time on the 2nd or the 3rd of October, and her running away to start a new life was thought unlikely. Whether she was unhappy with her husband or not, she was by all who knew her a devoted mum, and it seems highly unlikely that she would abandon her daughters. So where was Pia? Unsurprisingly, James was the initial focus of the inquiry into her disappearance, but he was soon ruled out of any suspicion in his wife's disappearance. The search for her continued, and as each day passed, police grew more and more concerned for Pia and that she'd come to some harm. To this extent, the search for her took on the search for a body as equally as a missing person, with divers and specialist search teams and even dog handlers were used to search for Pia. Just over two weeks later, on Saturday the 20th of October 1979, a woman named Mary Redver was walking her dogs through a copse called Carter's Grove near the village of Hartbury, just 10 miles from the Overbury home in Abbotswood Road in Brockworth. Mary was walking her dogs when she noticed a strange bundle in the trees just off the path that she was walking down. Calling her dogs to her, she wandered off the path and tentatively approached the bundle, and as she drew closer to it, the smell emanating from it and from what she could see told her that she just stumbled upon her body. Moving closer, she could see a pair of legs and a floral skirt sticking out from under a mound of leaves and branches. So with sudden fear, and having never found a body, I can imagine that that does get the heart going, Mary had the sudden frightening thought that was there still somebody about lurking behind one of the trees? She hastily made her way back to the path and rushed home, contacting police and informing them of what she'd found. When police arrived at the scene, they found the body to be that of a young woman, already badly decomposed, and with only the upper part of the body covered with branches, twigs and leaves. She was still fully clothed, and a tentative examination of the body at the scene showed mass bloodstain into the clothing at the rear of the body, in the centre of the back. It was photographed and removed away for autopsy, and the scene was sealed off and a full-scale murder inquiry began. Police suspected now that the disappearance of Pyre Overbury had just taken a tragic turn.
and they were to be proved right, as the body was identified from dental records as being that of Pyre. She was found to have been shot point-blank in the back from close range with a double-barrel shotgun, which had caused a catastrophic wound that had resulted in near-instantaneous death. It was also the opinion of the pathologist that Pyre had had sexual activity before her death, and even due to the decomposition of the body, there were clear signs that this had been a sexual assault. She was determined to have been dead for two to three weeks, which suggested that she'd been killed around the day that she'd last been seen alive. Pyre's husband was left to break the news and tell his two daughters that their mum wouldn't be coming home. A search of the cops was eventually to find Pyre's discarded handbag nearby, next to a number of spent shotgun cartridges from a .410 calibre weapon, but of the shotgun there was no sign and the search for the murder weapon got underway. The murder investigation at first focused upon James as being the prime suspect, but he could account for his whereabouts and give solid alibis and he was ruled out as a suspect early on. Everybody Pyre knew and who knew her, her family, friends and workmates were all spoken to to try to ascertain any possible or likely suspects and eventually police called on the Overbury's lodger, Glyn Dix, to interview him as a matter of routine as someone who knew Pyre. There was no suggestion of Dix having any involvement in the matter whatsoever. He was just spoken to as a matter of routine and police left, satisfied with the statement he'd given them. Dix was, however, so concerned and disturbed following the visit from police that he actually attempted suicide following it. He took an overdose. He was saved, though, being taken to hospital to have his stomach pumped. He was, following this, taken to the local psychiatric hospital at Coney Hill for evaluation and was admitted as a patient for a short time. Dix's behaviour was reported to have become more disturbed whilst as a patient here, being diagnosed as suffering from schizoaffective disorder, a condition similar to schizophrenia where the sufferer experiences a combination of the symptoms of this, hallucinations or delusions, strange beliefs and mood disorders that can flare up under times of stress. The suicide attempt was an extreme reaction indeed to being questioned, and when police learned of it, it was one that the circumstances caused police to look at Dix further. In fact, his reactions caused him to fast become their prime suspect. When police spoke to Dix again, he readily admitted being involved in Pyre's death, and directed police to two men in Hastings who he admitted buying the shotgun from. When they were found, they confirmed having sold it and ammunition to Dix. He then took police to where he had disposed of the shotgun, and they found the weapon that was used to kill Pyre. Dix was to give rambling, confused interviews and conflicting stories about what had happened. First he claimed that the two men from Hastings were responsible for the murder, saying that Pyre had approached him to find someone to take out a contract on her husband's life. She was an unhappy in her marriage, he claimed, and Dix had approached the two men with an offer of £2,000 to kill James Overbury. Instead, the two men had killed Pyre. He then changed this story, instead claiming that she'd approached him to do the killing, and he and Pyre had gone to the woods with a shotgun to practice shooting it, so Dix could demonstrate how he was going to kill James. And then Dix had decided, just out of the blue, to rape her. He had done, and then he claimed Pyre had asked him to shoot her because she was so unhappy at home, so Dix did so, claiming it was to put her out of her misery. 
Dix was charged with the murder of Pyre Overbury and was remanded to await trial. He appeared at Bristol Crown Court in July 1980, where he denied murder and instead claimed that Pyre had begged him to end her unhappy life, which he had obliged to do so. However, by the third day of the trial, Dix had changed his plea to that of guilty. He'd been advised to do so following the advice of his solicitor, who knew that the overwhelming evidence of Dix having raped Pyre would ultimately convict him of murder, plus the fact that he had dumped Pyre's car at the railway station and had disposed of the shotgun and lied to police throughout, and instead his solicitor told him to basically to admit everything. So Dix did so without protest, claiming that his decision to rape and kill Pyre had been due to a change in the seasons. It seemed that this killing was a result of Dix's mental illness and that he really was being honest when he said this. It seemed he really and truly believed that the seasons had controlled him to do this. As he had pleaded guilty, the then 26-year-old Glyn Trevor John Dix was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Pyre Overbury while his shattered family were left to try to pick up the pieces and move on. Dix was to spend the next 19 years incarcerated spending a large part of this sentence in high-security psychiatric hospitals. He spent time in Broadmoor and Ashworth high-security hospitals throughout the 1980s, before in the mid-1990s being deemed fit enough to join the regular prison population. He's not reported as being involved in any disturbances whilst in prison, and as time passed and Dix continued to improve, his prisoner category was gradually downscaled, as is normal when a prisoner is preparing for an eventual release. As part of this downscaling, he was moved to the then low-security prison HMP Gloucester, which was closed in 2013. Whilst he was here in 1997, Dix found himself sharing a cell with 21-year-old Adam Langford, a young man who was serving a prison sentence of six months for dangerous driving offences. The pair developed a close friendship throughout the time that they were cellmates, and even when Dix was moved to the psychotherapy ward of HMP Horfield in Bristol, they still kept in touch through letter. When Adam was released from prison, this extended to him going to visit Dix in Horfield prison, and as Adam was disqualified from driving due to the offences that had led to his imprisonment, he was driven to these visits by his mother, Hazel. Hazel was long divorced from the father of her six children, and as being 50 years old, she was quite similar in age to Glyn Dix, who by that time was just four years younger than her. She liked him from the first meeting and the feeling was mutual, and the pair got on very well. After they'd first met, Hazel would regularly drive Adam to visit Dix in Horfield, willingly driving the 80 or so miles there from the family home in Seymour Drive in the town of Redditch in Worcestershire. She and Dix had also begun to correspond regularly, and Hazel found Dix's letters to be, as quoted, warm, witty and charming, and she would often end up visiting him by herself, in fact more often than when she was driving Adam there. A romance between the pair had begun to blossom at a pace, and finally Hazel admitted to her family that she'd fallen in love with Dix, and the feeling was mutual, and this alarmed them. Now I can only imagine of course, but I think I'd have some qualms as well really, my mum come home and said, Oh yeah, Paulie, I've met this new fella. He's a lifer, killed someone. No biggie, really. He used to drive a lorry and he's from Yorkshire, you know. Well, that's only natural, isn't it, to be a bit concerned. You'd be like, uh, what? 
Hazel's brother, Wayne Denver, was especially concerned about the budding relationship, and he told Hazel bluntly that although he had a bad feeling about this, and he was convinced it was a bad move on her part, it was her life and he would support her no matter what. The rest of Hazel's children felt along similar lines, but then the thought crossed them that perhaps they were being too hasty. Hazel's letters to her children showed nothing but how happy and how in love with Dick she was, and of course anybody can make mistakes, and Dick's had spent a long time incarcerated for whatever he'd done. Stress whatever here, because what has never been established fully is the extent to which Dick's had confided in either Adam or Hazel as to the full reasons for his life sentence. As Dix was by now a low-category prisoner, he was allowed out on day releases and he got to meet Hazel's family one day early in 1999 on one of these releases. One of Hazel's daughters, Tracy Langford, explained the family concerns and asked Dix outright what he had done to wind up in prison. The story Dix was to come out with was an elaborate tale and one quite different from the reasons he told police and a jury back in 1980. Dix claimed that he was part of an elite army, and had somehow been knocked unconscious, coming around to find a body in front of him and a shotgun in his hands. It's unclear whether he was pushed as for more details, as this seems a very patchy story, and to be honest, a complete vague load of gobbledygook. Again, if it was your mum who was in love with this guy, wouldn't you want to know the full ins and outs of it all? And the first thing you do nowadays is, right, googling him then? I'd certainly want to know more. I like to think I'm an understanding, forgiving bloke, but you've got to know the full ins and outs of what you're forgiving and understanding, haven't you? Hazel was by all accounts convinced of Dix's innocence, and as said, it's unclear whether he told her the same vague story as he had to her daughter. She was happy, he was happy, and despite her family's misgivings, they tried to be happy and supportive for her when one day she told her family that Dix had proposed to her and that she'd accepted. Wayne Denver especially had misgivings about Dix, wasn't sure about him and reflected many years later. He said to my wife, I reckon he's killed that woman. If he's killed once, he'll kill again. Let's just hope it's not Hazel. On Friday the 5th of November 1999, Glyn Dix and Hazel married at the local registry office in Redditch in a ceremony attended by Hazel's family and captured on video by her brother Wayne. The reception was held back at Hazel's house where the new groom played the part of the perfect husband and his sincerity throughout the day managed to win over the rest of Hazel's family who began to take to him and accept him. Although he had to go back to prison after his temporary release, Dix wasn't to spend too much longer inside. As he was being prepared for release anyway, in January 2001, he was released on life license and moved into Hazel's house at 20 Seymour Drive, Redditch. The pictures and accounts from over the next few years show nothing except a happy-looking family. There are many photographs available of a smiling Dix at various barbecues, gatherings, and in each photograph the family looks stable and content. Hazel's children all got on well with Dix, the more that they spent time with him, and all seemed well. There were no reports of any rows or altercations between he and Hazel. They seemed very much in love. Some of her children were even known to refer to Dix as Dad, and all was fine. Until the 19th of June 2004, just three and a half years after Dix had been released. 
That afternoon was a sunny Saturday, and Hazel's son Adam, who lived with the couple, had been out for a few hours before making his way home and, as was customary, would enter through the back kitchen door. On this occasion, when he got home, he found the high garden gate locked and wondered if the couple had gone out, although he could see that their car was still there. Adam telephoned his mother from his sister Rachel's house across the street, and Dick's answered, to which Adam expressed surprise and told him that he'd been and knocked and he'd thought that they were out. Dix told him no, 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 we're in, and instead told him to come over and climb over the gate. So without thinking too much about the reasons for doing this, Adam made his way back over to his mother's house. Adam could not be prepared for what he found that afternoon, for it was a sight that still haunts him to this day, and probably will do for the rest of his and his sister's days. It was a sight that destroyed their family, and was so shocking that even several detectives were afterwards left in need of counselling. Please be advised that the following, told from the point of view of Hazel's children some time after the event, contains disturbing descriptions. Adam came into the kitchen to find Glyn Dick stood naked in the kitchen. Several candles, both lit and unlit, adorned the units. Blood covered the scene, it was absolutely everywhere, and on the floor was the butchered carcass of his mother Hazel. Carcass is probably the wrong term to use here, because she wasn't just dead, she'd been dissected. She'd been killed and her body was lying on the floor in 16 pieces. Just try and take that in, how must that have been to find? In the obvious deep shock that he was in, Adam couldn't really take in the horror that he was seeing in the room, and especially not the words that Dix had to say. He simply grinned and said to Adam, as though he was telling him something as trivial as the football scores that day, we've had a little argument. Adam's reaction was to rush out of the house and run back to his sister Rachel's house. And Rachel remembers. Suddenly Adam ran through the door and said that Glyn had stabbed my mum. My sister Vicky and I were in the kitchen. He was shouting, he's killed mum, he's chopped her up, and then he flew out of the front door. What's that about, I thought. What's he on? We ran to mum's conservatory and stood at the door. It was open and the kitchen door was open. Dix was there and he had nothing on, no clothes. He'd put them in the wash because they were covered in blood. Mum was on the floor. I saw her hair. The body had gone yellow. Dix said calmly, we've had a little argument. The knife was still in his hand, but there was nothing on it. He was clean. He'd washed himself and the knife. He looked straight through us. Then he slowly beckoned at me with his finger to go to him. Come here, he said. Like Adam, Rachel and Vicky were rooted to the spot and unable to comprehend at first what they were seeing. Rachel continued, He'd cut mum into 16 pieces. He'd cut out her heart, liver and kidneys. He'd chopped off some of her fingers and her head. He'd dismembered it everywhere. He even took pieces of skin off her ribcage so you could see them as well. There were two blows to the chest and two to the neck. He stabbed her in the heart, so at least we believe she died quite quickly. I swore at him at the top of my voice and ran back to my house, locked the front door and phoned the police. Adam, meanwhile, remained. He was to say later that Dix looked at him with what he described as evil eyes and said, Now we can be one. How would you react in a situation like that? Adam's response was to attack Dix, who tried to stab him. Just at that moment, the police arrived and burst into the kitchen. 
Dix made no attempt to flee from the scene, instead calmly dropped the knife and acted like nothing on earth was wrong or had happened. Hawley would say, pointing down at the numerous body parts that covered the blood-slicked kitchen floor was, That's my wife Hazel and I love her. We had an argument and it went too far. Bit of an understatement there really Glyn. Whilst Dix was taken into custody, a police guard was placed around the house and due to the extreme nature of the murder, Hazel's remains had to stay at the house overnight while the scene was documented. The rest of her family were told of what had happened and rushed around to another of Hazel's children's houses, the daughter Jodie, who lived nearby. All of them understandably shocked, they comforted each other as best they could and were joined immediately by a family liaison officer before police could find out why Dix had killed Hazel though, they needed to know exactly what had caused Hazel's death. Home office pathologist Dr Edmund Tapp performed the autopsy on Hazel's remains and found that she was brought to the morgue in 16 separate body bags. She'd been dissected into a mix of small and large parts, 16 in total. Her remains showed that Hazel had been stabbed all over several times in a brutal attack, several wounds piercing her heart. She'd then been decapitated, her arms and legs had been removed and sawn into pieces, and her middle fingers had been removed on each hand. Her internal organs had also been removed. To complete this gruesome task, the pathologist determined that Dix had spent considerable time and had used no less than 15 different instruments to complete the dissection, including various kitchen knives, a hacksaw, and even scissors. That's some argument, isn't it? When questioned, Dix admitted to police that he'd killed Hazel. He was diagnosed as suffering from extreme schizophrenia, and was found to display psychotic tendencies when he failed to take the med medication he was prescribed for his already documented mental issues. Dix was charged with Hazel's murder and remanded to Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital in Merseyside, where he'd spent time many years previously while he awaited trial. On the 16th of December 2005 at Birmingham Crown Court, Glyn Dix pleaded guilty to the murder of his wife Hazel Dix on the 19th of June 2004. The prosecutor, Jonathan Gosling QC, told the court Dix's version of events of the day of the murder. Dix claimed that he and Hazel had spent the afternoon making love and had decided to get up and watch television naked together when a row had flared up over what to watch. One of them wanted the wrestling on, the other one wanted football on. A statement he made to police was then quoted with Dix claiming, Hazel had said, right that's it, and she got hold of a knife and I got hold of a knife and as we started facing each other I stabbed her. She was going on and on and I felt under pressure felt my anger rise, I said I'd had enough of her. He was never to explain any further than this. Dix's defence counsel, Andrew Fisher QC, told the court, Mr Dix wants to put it on the record and acknowledge the gravest regret and deepest remorse for what occurred. He is bitterly, bitterly regretful and remorseful for what happened. He loved her dearly and she was, in his own words, his soulmate. He can't quite explain why he flipped that day. Sentencing Dix to a whole life order, Mr Justice Butterfield told him, You stabbed her to death and dismembered her body. It was brutal, horrific and abhorrent. 
You took the life of a woman who did much to help you and showed you much kindness, and you've also hurt deeply the family who welcomed you with open arms. Your risk has been described as extremely high, and your counsel has sensibly decided that I should not apply a set period and you will be detained on a whole life order. You will be detained in either a specialist hospital or a prison until you die. You are an extremely dangerous man. Half of Hazel's family were too traumatised, perhaps understandably, to attend court to see Dick sentenced. But her brother Wayne was there, and outside court he gave the following short statement to the press. We have each lost a sister, a mother, a grandmother and a very dear friend, and no words can describe the devastation this family feels about a man who gave the persona of a loving, caring person. He must never be set free for any reason. This will stay with us for the rest of our lives. Glyn Trevor John Dix remains in a secure hospital to this day and will never be released. What causes a man to literally flip like that? All Dix has ever said as a reason is that they had an argument over the television programmes. And of course it is documented that people do flip in the heat of a row and lose their head and in extreme cases they do commit murder. But to spend 45 minutes or so cutting up your soulmate using a variety of instruments? Hazel's family wanted answers from Dix, and it was through some investigating of their own that they found another, more macabre and chilling possible reason for Hazel's death. They were to find several pieces of evidence that suggest to them at least that Hazel was sacrificed. They remain convinced of this. Yeah, you heard that right? Sacrificed. Listen to the following and then see if you think that this is a possibility. What is your take on the occult? Personally, I'm not religious in any way. While it's not something I believe personally, I do of course acknowledge the comfort and teachings that it brings to so many people the world over. It's just not something for me. While there's no record or report of Dix ever displaying any religious overtones, Evidence found at the house he and Hazel shared would go some way to suggest that Dix did have some sort of fascination with the occult. After he was sentenced for the murder of Hazel, much was made of a photograph of a bare-chested Dix posing in the doorway with his hand in the commonly acknowledged hand gesture of Satan. If you're not sure what I mean, pretend that you are Spider-Man shooting a web. Hold that hand pose. That's what I mean. Fair enough, you think? Many people may do that posing for a photo. What may appear circumstantial was that the fingers Hazel had had removed left her hands in this exact pose. Now add to this the fact that beginning when he was first released from prison in 2001, Dix began painting a mural on the wall of the bedroom that he and Hazel shared and had finished it just days before he killed her in such a maniacal fashion. The mural depicted a circular altar of stones, much like the English prehistoric monument Stonehenge, a place that Dix is known to have visited several times, and also a place that has through legend been associated with human sacrifices in the past. It's not confirmed to have ever been a sacrificial site, although all legend does stem from something, and there have been recorded at least four bodies excavated from around the site over the past century that show signs of having met a violent death. It was reported that Dix painstakingly painted this mural, which took up an entire wall of their bedroom, doing it a bit by bit, and then photographing the work at various stages, 
so it was clearly an ambitious project that was very important to him. It is extremely detailed, and it has to be said that he does display talent as an artist. When the mural is looked at closely, it portrays a dark sky background, but with light emanating from within the circle. Several white-robed figures can be seen within, and also a blue fairy carrying what appears to be a scythe. Now, pictures of this mural were examined at great length by behavioural psychologist Diane Simpson, who's a specialist in analysing writings and drawings and determining the hidden messages and meaning, if there are any, behind them. She came to the conclusion that the mind who had painted this mural was answering a call that was in his mind and remarked on the subject of the painting that it was a ceremony of some kind. Much was also made of how Dix had taken so long in doing this, three and a half years, from release to just days before he murdered Hazel, and how a person can hold such drive and focus to create such a painstaking work. And this wasn't the only mural that Dix had painted in the house. Downstairs, in the kitchen, the room that he'd murdered Hazel in, and taking up a full wall, was a painting of a hideous, fire-breathing dragon. Again, it might not be to everyone's taste, but equally there may be people who would think that, yeah, that's quite cool. Okay, so add to these then the next couple of pieces of evidence. June 19th was the summer solstice, which is an important date as each year many people flock to Stonehenge to celebrate the solstice. It even has its own festival. It's also an important and significant date in the pagan calendar. And of course is the day that Glyn Dix murdered his wife. But what was to tie these points all together was the discovery of an envelope at the murder scene. It had a reference written on it to a biblical verse. Revelations 13 verse 18. The beast from the sea. This depicts two beasts rising, one from the sea and the other from the earth, looking all sorts of monstrous with many heads and breathing fire, wearing crowns, that kind of thing. But the beast from the earth resembles a fire-breathing dragon. This is also the chapter of the Bible that details the number of the beast, 666 if you didn't know, or haven't seen the omen. I always remember the woman getting her eyes pecked out by birds and the guy getting his head lopped off with a big sheet of glass in that movie. Great film, recommended if you haven't seen it. So I'm not going to repeat the full chapter of Revelations here. It does go on a bit and because I don't really profess to understand it. But I will read a line from it that may give you food for thought. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. When Dix was released in January 2001 and he began his mural to June 2004 when he completed it and just days later slaughtered his wife in such horrific fashion was three and a half years or 42 months. Yeah okay this may all seem circumstantial but if you put it together it does become something to consider. Did Dix really earmark Hazel for a sacrifice what would seem years before in some sort of offering to the devil to be killed after the 42 months mentioned in Revelations. I am not in any way suggesting that the devil exists, but if you have a mind that suffers mental illness, and Dix had been diagnosed as having schizoaffective disorder as far back as 1979, then a person may be susceptible to such ideas. In the first ever episode of the podcast, we looked at a case where mental illness was acerbated by religious mania and that led to an equally gruesome murder, so there is precedent for this kind of thing to happen. 
Did this go untreated throughout Dex's imprisonment? Or was it controlled through medication for many years, but lapsed when he began neglecting to take this medication after his release, and in an episode of extreme schizophrenia, he flipped and murdered Hazel one day? And is the ritualistic evidence just purely circumstantial? Glyn Dix himself may not even know. Schizophrenia may be preventing him from understanding. Or he may just be cruelly keeping the truth about why he killed Hazel from his still heartbroken family. Hazel's family have learned to live with her death in the years since she was killed, but it understandably still haunts them, and their resentment for Dix still remains as strong as ever. Perhaps it's best shown in these statements by Hazel's children, the depth of their feeling and just how much Dix's actions still affect them today. Hazel's daughter Rachel said, I dream that I'm looking at mum when she was at the funeral home. I also dream that I'm looking at her in pieces. It's horrible. Him saying sorry wouldn't make a difference. He will rot in jail for the rest of his life and we're glad. We put our trust in him to look after our mother for the rest of her life. I wish they could bring back hanging, but that would be too quick for him. He should be buried alive. Hazel's son Adam added, My mum gave him everything. He took her life and ruined mine. I have sleepless nights. If I'd never gone to jail, I'd never have met this animal and mum would be alive today. I wouldn't wish the pictures I have in my head on anyone else. The family has also expressed anger at someone as clearly as dangerous as Glyn Dix was ever allowed to be released from prison, saying, Someone decided to let this man out to kill again. I've written to the Home Office asking why he was allowed out. I want to know why nobody warned us of his past. This man has destroyed the lives of two families, and unless action is taken, the same mistake will happen and other innocent lives will be taken by evil men like him. The case was referred to a review committee and a spokesperson commented, Regrettably, no matter how much care we take, a few people will re-offend. When they do, we try to look at what lessons can be learned. Now this is something I can personally see both sides to. It's of course easy to empathise with the family of Hazel who have anger and grief and question why a convicted killer responsible for a horrific enough brutal rape and murder of a young mother was allowed out to do it again. In their shoes, surely the same emotions would be felt and questions asked. Yet I can also see here the point raised by the review committee spokesperson. A few people will reoffend. There will always be a couple of people who play the system, say the right things and come across as a convincing liar and fool those with the power to grant privilege or release. And to challenge that challenges the concept of rehabilitation rather than punishment. I think myself that Dix has always had the capacity to kill and that hasn't diminished throughout his years incarcerated following the murder of Pyre Overbury. I don't think that the entire blame can also be put on his mental state for this crime. He had capacity enough to attempt to cover his tracks in it and then to tell lie after lie to police following his arrest. He only pleaded guilty when it was pointed out that the evidence against him in the case was overwhelming and then he claimed it was because of a change in the seasons. Did he believe this and this interest in the occult did it control him or was it another elaborate lie? Why he targeted Pyre Overbury and decided to rape and kill her has never been fully explained. Dix himself has told several different tales about the killing and one can best surmise that she was abducted at gunpoint and forced to drive to the woods, was raped and then shot dead in cold blood. There is also no way to ascertain as to whether Dix was taking any medication at the time 
although I'd be inclined to think that medication to combat schizophrenia is a lifelong necessity, and I can imagine that this is regulated somewhat when someone's incarcerated. But when released, the person is most likely left to self-medicate, and it's possible that Dix had stopped taking any medication before the murder. This, to me, is a case that raises many questions. For example, the murals. I wonder what his explanation for the choice of art was, and I wonder what exactly he had told Hazel about his reason for his life sentence. I would also consider the possibility that Dix had killed before he killed Pyre in 1979. A trace of his known whereabouts pre-1979 should be made to see if there are any unsolved cases that may possibly tie in with Dix being a possibility as responsible for. I was unable to find much about his early life and movements while I was researching this episode, but I do believe it a distinct possibility that he may be responsible for other crimes. As has come to be standard on the podcast now, a pretty gruesome and shocking case again this week then. And what are your thoughts? Was the killing of Hazel some sort of sacrifice, or is this really just the work of a madman out of his mind? And why target Pyre? What's the motivation for Dix? Was it a sexual motive, or did he just need to kill, and the wrong person was there at the wrong time each time? Only Glyn Dix can possibly know, and he will likely take the reasons for each murder with him to the grave. I hope this bizarre and gory episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast has kept you entertained this week and has given you a few points to think about and some food for thought. I'll be putting a discussion thread up about it in the Facebook group, so please feel free to join in and also to catch me on the usual social media links where I'm not hard to find. I'm always the True Crime Enthusiast or a slight variation on that title. If you've caught up and would like to hear more of the show, then as outlined at the start of the episode, there is of course a Patreon site for the show now, contains bonus content and offers with more things on the way, and the show can be found on various platforms, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm also in the process of updating the WordPress blog with some cases that have been featured, and links to all are as usual with the show notes. Now I have a couple of episodes left, and then I'm having a short break and a bit of a recharge for a couple of weeks and then I'll be back refreshed for much more of the same. But that's not for a couple of weeks yet, so until then, I hope you'll join me next week when I have another case on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Thank you for joining me today all. I wish you all a good safe week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care guys, thanks, and goodbye for now.